0: Will free speech ultimately be saved by the U.S. Supreme Court? Professor Eric Siegel is skeptical about putting our faith and our fate in the hands of nine black-robed justices placed for a lifetime on the court. He questions the outsized role of justices and judges to overturn laws, which should only happen, he says, when there's very clear and convincing evidence of an irreconcilable variance between the law and my constitutional rights. But we live in the real world of today where even the originalists on the court tackle laws that do not seem in direct conflict with the Constitution. How did we get here? Listen to this succinct history of our Supreme Court's decision and how they have changed our public and political culture. Let me ask him whether we can imagine a world where the Supreme Court would act differently and where political decisions would be largely left to elected officials rather than a small group of unelected, life-tenured graduates of a tiny number of elite law schools. Professor Siegel teaches at Georgia State University. He's the author of the books Originalism as Faith and Supreme Myth Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Judges. <laughs> Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not Cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world. With Uli Baer. I'm speaking with Eric Segal, who is professor of law at Georgia State University, College of Law. So Eric, first of all, thank you for joining me on Think About It today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Eric, I've read as much as I could of your law school articles and the book Originalism as Faiths. And you touch on two topics that, on this podcast, I've talked about with a lot of people. One is free speech, one is affirmative action. And what comes up in these conversations a lot is the First Amendment, capital T, capital F, capital A, as this is what the founders really meant, so that there's an original meaning that we should adhere to the text of the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, and that this will give us enough information to decide all these cases today. Can you say a little bit how you got interested in this question of originalism and that the the original text should be the baseline into which everything else must be incorporated?
1: Well, what you just said is emphatically not my position and emphatically not true. (laughs) The, The text of the First Amendment and the history of the First Amendment doesn't get us anywhere close to the robust and complicated and convoluted First Amendment doctrine the court has been articulating since you know the 1920s or so. In fact, a law professor at the University of Richmond named Judd Campbell wrote a Yale Law Journal article last year that, in my mind, persuasively shows that the founding fathers' view of speech and their view of expression and their view of the press uh, does not justify any of the doctrines that we have today, what they basically thought was free speech was a natural right. But what they meant by that was very narrow, that you have the right in good faith to say what you think, and we can't have prior restraints on the press. But everything else involving speech and expression can be regulated if doing so is for the public good and what judd points out in this article is they thought that balance between the public good and freedom of speech would be made almost exclusively by the legislature not by judges and in fact in in my in both of my books i point out that the founding fathers especially alexander hamilton who wrote the most important Federalist paper on Judicial Review, they expected judges to play a very minor role. They didn't expect judges to create common law doctrines of speech and equality and that kind of thing. So, no, it is my position that, for better or for worse, our current free speech, affirmative action, constitutional law in general world cannot be and has not been justified by text and history. I'm a legal realist. It is a product of the justice's values, politics and
0: experiences so interesting when you're saying for better or for worse you're saying today's the world we live in which was formed by laws legal decisions and also norms or assumptions we make about how things should work none of this can be traced back directly to what you said the founding fathers had in mind but we have arrived at this now through a practice precedent etc that is different from an originalist would say this is what they had in mind. Which you said is natural right and the freedom of the press. These are the only two things you said, right? Well, and the and the ability to say what you think as long as you do
1: so in good faith. You have the right. They thought you had the right to say what you think as long as you don't hurt anybody else and you do so in good faith.
0: So when we're saying for better or for worse, so before we get to what today's decisions are, so when you go back to so why do people? continually refer back to this moment of the founding fathers and try to quibble and say, no, actually, Professor Siegel, you're wrong. They meant something else. They meant much more. They justify all these decisions today. So so, so my
1: book, Originalism is Faith, um, the central thesis of that book is that judges, lawyers, many law professors, and the American public generally, though not political scientists who study the court, but leaving aside political scientists, lawyers, judges, the people need to have the faith that what the Supreme Court is doing is in some material sense dictated by or generated by the text and history of the Constitution in order for them to keep their faith in an institution of unelected life tenure judges who you know serve for life, making all these important decisions. But the reality is it's just a matter of faith. Justice Scalia voted to strike down well over 100 100 laws, state and federal, during his career on the bench, and very, very few of them did he make a persuasive or any originalist case for striking down those laws. You know, Scalia used to thump his chest and say, I voted that a flag burner couldn't be prosecuted by the state of Texas. See how great I am. I hate flag burners, but the Constitution says I have to let them go because of the First Amendment. Well, first of all, it's very unlikely the founding fathers would have agreed with that, um, they w- and, and they definitely probably would not have agreed that expression of that kind of speech, burning a flag as opposed to talking. But more importantly, Scalia's overriding value there was free speech is more important than punishing flag burners. There were four dissenters, including Justice Stevens, you know, a pretty liberal justice, who said no— We should carve out an exception for flag burning from our normal free speech doctrine just like we've carved out obscenity and just like we've carved out defamation and uh, and other types of activities. All of that has nothing to do with text and history and has everything to do with the justice's experiences, values, and politics. And we can have that same conversation for 99% of constitutional law questions.
0: And you're bringing up Scalia because he's a self, he was a self-proclaimed originalist, right? Yes, but he was not. In his practice, you're <laughs> saying, he's saying I'm originalist, but he's making decisions that and then you're saying, I'm just going to push you on this, you're saying, well, the founding fathers most likely would have not condoned flag burning because it would have interfered, I presume, with our public order? Well, see, I, I think the, the way you uh, – let me just push back on how
1: you frame that question. With flag burning, it might be a fair question. But with most issues of constitutional law, the question itself is absurd. So let's ta- let's take affirmative action. What would the ratifiers and drafters – of the people of the 14th Amendment in 1868 have thought about affirmative action. We don't care because they didn't know about two generations of Jim Crow and apartheid that was about to happen. They saw the federal government give a lot of benefits only to black people, freed slaves. So in that sense, they probably would have thought the federal government could engage in affirmative action. But then again, they don't know all of the stigma and policy arguments made by Justice Thomas and his dissents about affirmative action. So to ask the question what they thought, you would have to t- give them a lot of information. And once you give them a lot of information, then then translating what they would have thought into that information is a call that is made according to modern values. Another example is women's rights. We know with certainty, with certainty, that the people in 1868 uh, did not think women had the right to vote, didn't think women were separate from their husbands when it came to married women, and Illinois didn't let women be lawyers in the 1870s, and the Supreme Court upheld that. In fact, the Supreme Court upheld a Michigan statute that prohibited women from being bartenders in the 1940s. wasn't that long ago. Yet today we assume the Equal Protection Clause protects women fully almost fully. That's because it makes no sense to ask what they would have thought about women because their views about women were completely different than our, our values today. And that's what the justices do. They take their modern values and apply them to vague aspirations like equality or freedom of speech or whatever, um, and they make their decisions. I mean it's, it's no coincidence. I've written several blog posts suggesting that Justice Thomas – his overriding value <laughs> is consistency with the Republican Party's political objective, not originalism.
0: Right, and in these, in these commentaries on Justice Thomas's decisions, you're saying, even if he claims it's originalism, you're saying it's not consistent at all. He makes decisions, in some cases, you could potentially say the founders would have thought this, in other cases, not at all, right? So there's, an, there's two arguments I thought you made, that one is originalism does not work, as because it's a matter of faith. Secondly, that it's inconsistently applied by the justices who claim to be originalists. Okay, and and let me be clear. Both of those statements are true with a big caveat.
1: I'm actually an originalist in a very important sense. My view of constitutional law in general, as reflected in my first book and, and a little bit of my second book, is for policy reasons, I don't think judges should overturn laws unless the constitutional violation is absolutely clear, which is almost never. And to me, a more sane world would be every plaintiff who comes into court claiming that a law violates his or her constitutional rights, must show through clear and convincing evidence that there is an irreconcilable variance and that is Alexandra Hamilton's phrase, an irreconcilable variance between the law and the Constitution. I want to live in that world Now we don't we've never lived in that world, but I want to live in that world. In that sense, I'm an originalist, but because that's not the world we live in, I have to discuss constitutional law in you know in the in, in the real world. In the real world, Scalia and Thomas, consistently, it's hard to talk about them both because one is no no longer with us and one is, but they both consistently have voted to strike down laws when there is no persuasive evidence that the founding fathers would have thought that was a good idea.
0: And tell me a little bit about this world that you said, the world you would like to live in, which, how would that differ from today's world? Where the court, are you suggesting that the court has um, a degree of influence on society or power that you would think is maybe a little too much? It, it would be dramatically different in this world, and yes, I think
1: it is much too much. I, I can't give you a soundbite answer to that. So I can answer your question, but it will take a few sentences, and I apologize, and I hope, you're, I hope your listeners are patient. But
0: Absolutely, is. and you're describing a whole world that you say you want to live in, so I'm curious what that okay. feels like.
1: Well, 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 here's the evil the Supreme Court has done. In 1857, Congress wants to end slavery in the territories. And the Supreme Court says, no, you can't. And not only that, but African-Americans can never be citizens. That decision, the Dred Scott decision, was a disaster and you know very much led us into civil war. In 1875, Congress wanted to end segregation in theaters, hotels, and restaurants and stop Jim Crow before it ever happened. Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. Now, I'm not saying the North had the political will necessarily to enforce that decision. But but if the court had said, yes, Congress can do this, symbolically, that would have been incredibly important. From 1900 to 1936, the court struck down over 200 laws involving minimum wages, overtime rules, labor safety, employee safety. Most of those laws are valid today. Uh, child labor laws, the court struck down. That 30-year period caused demonstrable harm, especially in the child labor case where children worked in factories much longer than they should have when Congress tried to stop it because the Supreme Court wouldn't let Congress do that. Um, We get to the Warren Court in the 60s and 70s in the Burger Court, and although I am pro-choice all the way down – Um, On a personal note, I met my wife when I gave a talk to Planned Parenthood. I volunteer for Planned Parenthood. No one is more pro-choice than I am. Roe versus Wade has has hurt women and progressives more than any decision in American history. Um, The the, the reaction to it, the political fallback, the fact that our elections – Local, state, federal, judicial nominations are all you know, you know, affected by Roe versus Wade. Terrible decision. Um, gutting the Voting Rights Act was a terrible decision. I could go on and on. Now, there are some liberal moments in that, Brown versus Board and Obergefell. Um, but my argument is not a political one. My argument is the justices have been doing all of these terrible things without any serious basis in text or history. They just do what David Strauss of, of University of Chicago has called common law constitutionalism. They're just making it up. They're just putting their values in, and I see no political theory where unelected, life tenured, elite Harvard and Yale law school, you know, law school graduates should be dictating our rules about abortion, gun control. Um, Uh, you know, health insurance and and so on. And just one last thing about this. If we were, if I was called, if we were called by an Eastern European country, we're going to start a new democracy and have a new constitution. We like your system, but we do want to get some issues out of the way. So we're going to need help from you guys with gun control or with campaign finance or with affirmative action because we have some disadvantaged groups. Please send us your experts so we can decide ahead of time how we're go- before the Constitution is ratified. How we're going to deal with affirmative action, gun control, abortion, and so on. Why would we send lawyers? And we wouldn't. We would send educational experts. We would, for the gun control, we'd send police officers and maybe citizens groups. And and you know and you know for 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 campaign finance reform, the, the balance between free speech and corruption is very very difficult. We wouldn't send lawyers. They, don't, they have no expertise in these things. So the fact that we delegate those issues in this country to one life tenure institution made up only of elite lawyers strikes me as a very crazy way to run a country, and I like the idea of judicial review when the constitutional error is obvious if it's not obvious let the people decide let the people
0: vote interesting i mean i'm i'm listening to you and i'm i'm going to refer to two so two other guests on the podcast so erwin schemerinski was on the podcast a while ago he's a good friend of mine by the way i, you, I think you've co-authored a couple of things with him yes. so he yes. wrote this book the case against the court and he said the court has failed over the history of our country to defend minorities against majority rule and to look out for the interests of minorities in this political process. And but in that book, I, I thought the argument is the court could have done better. Some of the decisions that you named, Plessy, or um, right. you know those. Well, of- well, not Plessy. Plessy
1: is Plessy falls out, but Dred Scott certainly in the civil rights cases, and Lochner, and all th- those. So things. he said those yeah.
0: cases are wrong, morally wrong. He said most people, he presumes, would disagree with them today. But I thought in his book he's still saying, but the court could have done the right thing, so he's not going as far as you are. And then I connected to another conversation I had with Susan Williams from Indiana two weeks ago who said she's been advising other countries on how to set up constitutions. And she's a lawyer and a constitutional expert, and she said that is my role. So you would say, you would advise somebody, don't give so much power to the court and leave it to the legislature to work out these laws, right?
1: So first of all, let's talk about Irwin for a minute. So Irwin wrote the prologue to my book, Originalism is Faith. And and he and I have had many conversations. And at the end of his prologue to my book, he did say, you know, um, he said, judicial review itself, leaving aside originalism, comes down to faith. Faith that judges will do a good job of this. Erwin's always had that faith at the end of this book, he says, but I have to admit, it's harder and harder to keep that faith. (laughs) I mean, at the end of his prologue, Um, Erwin and I agree 98 percent of the time, but we disagree on the Supreme Court. Um, He still has this kind of growing of age. He's a little bit older than I am growing of age in the Warren court era when for 10 years for liberals, the court did good things. And Erwin disagrees with me about the backlash to all of that. but the reality is, and I think Irwin would admit this today, from se- I'm sure he would, from 1787 to 2019, overall, the court has been a nightmare for liberals and progressives and a friend to conservatives, which is not why I take the views that I take. So going now to the, to the Indiana person, um, I need a theory as to why we would delegate to lawyers the delicate balancing of, for example, Gun rights and gun safety. Let's assume for a moment the Second Amendment does give us some right to own a gun. I don't think it does, but assume that it does. The needs of Montana and the needs of New York City and Atlanta versus Savannah and you know and 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 Nassau County versus uh, Orange County are so different and so varied and and and. You know, kind of balancing the cost benefits of gun ownership versus gun safety shouldn't be done by lawyers. It should be done by voters and representatives and gun experts and policemen, citizens groups and all of that. Um, You know, the issues, as I say, I'm very pro-choice, but I understand the argument against abortion. And at the end of the day, I agree with what Justice Scalia said about this. Let me be clear. Scalia was a huge hypocrite and did not abide by the statement he made in his dissent in the Casey abortion decision, where he said value judgments should be voted on, not dictated. I agree with that. I'm all in with Scalia on that. Value judgments should be voted on, not dictated. The problem is Scalia imposed his value judgment 117 or 125 times, you know, invalidating federal and state. So he said, basically,
0: my values are neutral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I just um,
1: look. I, I, I'm a lawyer. You know, I come from you know a, a, an upper middle class background. Um, I didn't go to Harvard or Yale, but I went to reasonable schools. You know, I'm part of that class of people. But I want to as I saying, want to
0: stay with you for a moment here on this difference yeah, okay. between it's, as if it's you said it's a nuance difference between Ovencio Morinsky's view. And so we can use this metaphor. I guess it's Roberts who says the judges should be umpires, not players. Well, that's absurd. No one thinks that. But I'm actually quite <laughs> interesting. Can you ex- uh, this unpack this a bit for me? That people do refer to the court and say, "Look, we want the court because we don't trust that if we gave it to just um, elected representatives, that actually minority rights would be protected. That they're saying the court's supposed to look out for that. That something doesn't, and it's not okay. just so." It, you know what I'm well, saying, okay. that the court yes, is I do. To be a I do. regular and, and, and a couple of things. moderating First and of all, regulating entity.
1: Co- I'm sorry. Congress has protected minority rights much better than the court, full stop. Easy call. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, we can live without judicial review of federal laws. We probably need it with regard to state laws. Um, the famous James Bradley Thayer, whose views on deference by judges to the voters I subscribe to a lot, um, even he said— we should have great deference for federal laws, state laws maybe not so much. So, so the first thing is, we don't need the court to review federal laws to protect minorities. Congress does a better job. So that's that's the first thing. And the court is this factually the court has gotten in the way, struck down the Voting Rights Act, struck down the you know the, the Civil Rights Acts of 1875, what it did in what it did in um, um, uh, Dred Scott, and so on and so forth. So I, I don't think that's a close call. Um, but Going back to to the basic question, where the Constitution specifically protects a minority right, I think judges should protect that right. The problem is there are very few places the Constitution does that. We all agree on freedom of speech. I think, in America, most people. Actually, I'm getting skeptical some young people believe in that. But most of us believe in freedom of
0: speech. I, I, I'll get back to that. Okay, good.
1: Okay. Most of us believe in freedom of religion. Most of us believe in, in equality and due process. But applying those to difficult fact patterns is hard. I've been on my admissions committee at my law school for many, many years. I've thought about you know affirmative action. I think affirmative action raises very difficult policy questions. Who wouldn't say that, right? I mean, I I hope most people would expect, whether it's right or wrong, as a policy matter, there were good arguments on both sides. But there's no feasible constitutional argument against it, The 14th, despite the fact that the court has said there is. The 14th Amendment doesn't say anything about race. It was meant to help people of color, not hurt people of color. And the difference between excluding an entire race, like the University of Texas in 1955 was 100% white, blacks don't apply versus 2019 University of Texas that wants to use race a little bit to get more mixing of the races are completely separate, different things. Yet the Supreme Court calls affirmative action discrimination when it's not, at least not by the standard terms.
0: Two things. Before we get to the sort of um, moderating function, just stay for a moment and give me two more sentences on the 14th Amendment. It doesn't name race and why you think the court or some justices that affirmative action is actually... Um, and you've written about this, is actually non-constitutional because of this dissenting voice in the Plessy case later on. Just to unpack that, be, for people to understand, what does the 14th sure. Amendment—
1: So what the conservatives on the court have said is that the 14th Amendment stands for color blindness, That, you know, public universities—this um, uh, doesn't apply, obviously, to Emory or Harvard— but it applies to the University of Michigan and Georgia State, my school. Public universities that are bound by the Constitution um, are not allowed to use race in their admissions process because of this principle of colorblindness. Justice Harlan, a great justice, in his dissenting opinion in the Plessy case where the court upheld segregation and separate but equal, he dissented and said, our Constitution is colorblind. But he also said that we don't don't have caste in this country, and he said all this in the context of a law that was a caste-creating law. Blacks, you have to be in separate trains or the back of the train. Whites go in front because whites are superior. It was a white supremacy context, and in that context, he said we, we have to be colorblind. He was not faced with the problem.
0: Right. Just to stay Um, there for a moment, so Justice Harlan is opposing a law of segregation or voter segregation, and this is now used by people who are saying he set the world colorblind, therefore we should actually oppose affirmative.
1: Yes, or Justice Roberts very recently in 2006 said the way to stop discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating based on race in the context of teachers, parents, PTAs, School districts on their own voluntarily trying to get more racial balancing in elementary and secondary schools in Louisville, Kentucky, a city that had formalized racial segregation for most of its history, and Seattle, Washington, where neighborhood patterns make integration very difficult. This was never, this was not court ordered. On their own, the, this is local democracy at its very best. Parents, teachers, students. School boards coming up with a very limited plan where race played a very small role in making sure that all the public schools in the districts at least had a minimum amount of racial diversity. Justice Roberts voted to strike that down based on the principle. The way to stop discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating based on race and his view of Brown versus Board of Education as announcing a colorblind principle. But all of that is contestable all of that is disputable. We've had we've had unequal protection for most of our country's history. To then move from that to equality, as Justice Blackman once said, the only way to move past racial discrimination is to use race. <laughs> and, and and I'm not saying who's right and wrong about that. What I'm saying is reasonable people can disagree about it. And if reasonable
0: people can disagree
1: about it, let the voters decide.
0: Okay. Okay. So this gets that back to that people then look to the court and say, well, I disagree vehemently with Eric's position here and we don't know what our, which values are right. And so we're going to look at the court and you've written quite a bit about the justices and their kind of sacred status in American society, that people say these nine people or eight people will decide because we, the two of us can't make up our minds. So we'll look to somebody who has greater authority. Yeah. So what you're saying is that how do you think especially in today's climate, in the last couple of years, how did this come about that the court is, is being given such authority and it has this reputation of this kind of sacred place with these people who dispense wisdom?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's nothing new. You know, the Tocqueville said in the 18-somethings, 1840s, 50s, 60s, I forget, that every you know, policy issue in America eventually gets to the courts. We, we, have, a, we, we have a system where we think that judges applying the open-ended principles of the Constitution to new fact patterns is the way we should govern ourselves. Now, let me be clear, I don't think Judge Bork thought that. I don't think Ed Meese thought that originally. I don't think a a legal scholar named Raoul Berger, who's a famous originalist, thought that. They all thought, unless there's some clear violation, Courts should let it go, and um, but they are no longer part of the originalist movement. Originalists today want judges to play a very strong role, which is, to me, ultimately frustrating because that's not what the Founding Fathers intended. Now, I'm not suggesting we should have one system or the other based on what the Founding Fathers thought 200 years ago, but if you're an originalist, you should care what they thought. And let me tell you what they thought, because they said it. They said judges shouldn't strike down laws unless there's an irreconcilable variance, you know, an, an absolute contradiction. And that's not the form of judicial review we have today at all, of course.
0: I want to ask you something else about when the court takes up cases. So Justice Thomas, you know, quite well he says always in an, when an appropriate case comes before the court. We all know the court picks the cases. When in the culture does something shift that the court should actually, given the function and power it has right now, revisit a case? So when does the, the society tilt in a direction that the court isn't ahead of us, of where we are culturally, socially, but the sort of says this has actually changed? So marriage equality is probably one um, that. The, there was a moment in time when it was inconceivable for many people not for all people never for all people some people always thought this is a, a human right but when should the court actually given where the court is today not in your world in the perfect world you want to live in but in the world we live in right, right now where the right. court has this kind of um both legal role and symbolic function
1: that's a great question it's a really hard one and i, and I don't I, I know i've been kind of um uh, dogmatic in this conversation. I, I don't have dogmatic answers about this. I, I do have a story about it that might help though, provide some context to this. So, uh, most people who know me know that I'm pretty close to former judge Richard Posner, who is the most cited legal academic of the last 50 years and the most famous judge never to be on the Supreme court. And in 1997, Judge Posner wrote, uh, retired Judge Posner, wrote a Yale Law Review article saying same-sex marriage is a crazy idea. And of course, you know, no, they don't have a right to get married. And, you know, very much a response to uh, another Yale law professor's book suggesting same-sex marriage. And Posner was dead set against it. Meanwhile, skip ahead to 2000, I don't know, 13, 14, or 15. And Judge Posner votes to strike down Indiana, Washington, Indiana, Wisconsin's, and um, Illinois' laws against same-sex marriage. And he writes an opinion. And after he published the opinion, he and I talked a lot about it. And this is what he told me. I said, I said, I said, why did you change? 20 years ago, you said it was it was obviously, you know, not a constitutional right. Now you say that it is what changed. And he said the world changed. He said, for one thing. In Indiana and Wisconsin, I believe, gay people are allowed to adopt children. Now, these children go to school. And they their parents aren't married because they can't be, and they're teased by their fellow students or they're made fun of by their fellow students that their parents aren't married. And Posner says to me, that's awful. It makes no sense, and you know it, it causes real harm. He also talked about the financial penalties, of course, that that same-sex marriage couples would face um, in terms of inheritance taxes and other things. My point there is. Posner is the quintessential – was the quintessential practical judge who looked at what's happening on the ground, facts, consequences, harms, and made decisions and didn't pretend the vague, imprecise text and contested histories of those texts are what decides constitutional law cases. So the answer, my answer to your question is if a judge is so – for example, Ro, should we reverse Roe versus Wade? Should we reverse the Casey decision? I don't think we answer that question through originalism or textualism or any other grand theory of constitutional interpretation. I think we look at the world, women's place in the world, whatever you think about the fetus being a human being, and you make the most pragmatic decision you can, which is – and all of that, I think, should suggest why my fantasy world is a better world, because Justice Ginsburg, who I love and think is a great justice, um, has no more insight into the abortion issue than you and I do. She doesn't. I mean, she studied feminism more maybe, but, but, she, but it's, a va- it's a value judgment, not a legal judgment. Why are we allowing life-tenured people we don't vote for to impose their value judgments on us is something I don't understand. But since we do, the answer to your question is when should we overturn a precedent? when conditions on the ground suggest it's a good idea to do so.
0: Would you um, – this is a very technical question. Would you, would you think something like term limits for the justices would be a better idea, a step towards something more reasonable? Well, I, yeah, no, I've long advocated – well, I, but, I, but I have a, I have a
1: different first choice. Tim, Term limits are very important. After Justice Scalia passed away and before the election – when all of my liberal friends and progressive friends were frothing at the mouth as to how this new liberal court is going to change the world for the better, um, I became an outcast in my progressive community because I wrote a series of articles and essays in New York Times other places um, saying, this is perfect right now. We have four liberal judges. We have four conservative judges. We should free – there's no number in the Constitution. We have any number we want. Congress should pass a law saying there will be an even number of justices. It could be eight, ten, twelve. Let's take eight. And they have to be evenly divided. Now, the president can appoint anyone – nominate anybody he wants. But the Senate, as we learned from Merrick Garland, doesn't have to give anybody a hearing. Uh, rather than term limits, I mean, I think Thomas is a good idea. I would rather see a structural change to the court that makes it much harder for them to strike down laws, either maybe a supermajority requirement. I think that would take a constitutional amendment. Or if we have four liberals and four conservatives, then by definition, every time the court issues a decision, one liberal will have to agree with four conservatives or vice versa. I think that would be a great idea. One last thing about that. There was a Um, school of thought at the turn of the 20th century that the court should almost never strike down laws 5-4. And in fact, the court very rarely struck down laws 5-4. If you couldn't get seven or eight votes, you probably shouldn't do it. That norm lasted pretty long, but it is now completely obliterated, obviously, and, and doesn't exist anymore.
0: Interesting. I w- I'm going to ask you another thing about the founding fathers, the founder generation, mm-hmm. and then one of, and I'm going to ask you something about free speech and your sense of where we are today, especially with students. The founding fathers. There's and I've had a couple people on the show who have talked to me a lot about the the constitutional uh, the conversations, the framers, all the federalist, anti-federalist, all the papers, and they and then people have talked to me and said you have to ask these people the fact that it was 350 or however many white men with property cannot generate a text that is really inclusive of American society. And the people I've talked to, are scholars or historians of this moment, they sort of couldn't really get to that question. I said, well, no, but they were writing these open-ended documents and the phrases are open-ended enough to actually give room for everything that happened in the last 200 and some years. But what do you make of that um, question? To say it was written by white men, with power, money, property. So it right. cannot really address the reality of lived Americans today.
1: Well, I, I I would go farther than that. Not only are our perceptions of women and people of color and minorities, you know, obviously dramatically different than those people who wrote, ratified, and voted for the original Constitution and the Reconstruction Amendments, but our technological world is of course so completely different, and even our governmental world is so completely different. The president, the the the, the, the post New Deal executive branch w- that passes laws every day in the form of regulations. Um, I, by the way, when I worked for the Department of Justice, I actually wrote a law once. It's a convoluted story, but you didn't vote for me, you didn't know who I was, you never saw me. I wrote a law. It, I, 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 we. <laughs> there's a law professor. There's a law professor named Michael Paulson who's famous. Who's wow. very conservative. I mean, he couldn't be more conservative. I couldn't be more progressive. They got, they got the both of us together, and they said, "You guys write a law about." Do you remember Robert Mapplethorpe and his? Of course. Of course. So the National Endowment for the Arts funded all this controversial art in the late 1980s. Congress— My colleague Karen Finley was named in this law. Yes, of course, Karen Finley. Yes, teaches of course, at well.
0: NYU. She's a beloved and revered colleague, and she was named in that lawsuit, which upended her life, not in the best way, obviously. So, so
1: the Congress—as so just as a as a kind of amusing aside—not amusing for her, but amusing aside, Congress, because of Strom Thurmond and I think Jesse Helms, I think mostly Strom Thurmond, um, passed a law prohibiting the National Endowment of the Arts from funding, quote, obscene art. But they didn't define obscene, and they said the executive branch will. So the Justice Department got one of its most ardent liberals and one of its most ardent conservatives, and they put us in a room, and they said, write it up. (laughs) Write the regulations up. And we did, and they had the force of law I will say that a San Diego district court judge struck them down as unconstitutional, um, but he was reversed. Um, my point there is no one voted for me. I mean now that wasn't that imp- – I mean it was, an important, it was an important law to Karen Finley and, and others, but it wasn't an, an important law to most Americans. But, but, but the idea my, – my point, going back to the original point, the founding fathers could never have anticipated the executive branch we have today. So any question, whether it be legislative vetoes in the Chata case, or whether it be the line item veto act in the Clinton case, or whether it be the recess appointment cause, whatever it is, we have to accept the founding fathers would never have understood our world. <laughs> so why would we seek their wisdom on issues that they had no idea about and could not Anticipate. Uh, I didn't write this, but somebody writing about Justice Thomas once criticized him. Justice Thomas's position is children have absolutely no First Amendment rights. I don't know if you know that. None. Zero. The reason children have anywhere, the reason zero they – they have zero First Amendment rights, according to Thomas, is at the founding, parents had complete control of their children – And the founding fathers would never have thought children had rights separate from their parents. That's Justice Thomas's view. It is highly selective. I don't even know if it's accurate. Um, But there are 100 cases Justice Thomas has voted on where he has not brought up the original meaning. But here's what somebody wrote. Somebody wrote, asking what the founding fathers would have thought about whether children can wear armbands to schools or whatever is like asking the following question. You don't have a sister. But if she did, would she like cheesecake? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's the same thing. How would James Madison deal with the question? President Obama assassinates an American citizen having lunch in Yemen. Now, this by drone, this citizen was a horrible person and very likely a terrorist. But no court, no rule of law institution had ever found him to have committed a crime or be a terrorist, and he wasn't coming at us you know, on the battlefield with a gun. Of course, we can kill American citizens at war with us. He was sitting having lunch. Can the president do that? Well, for James Madison, for us to get any information from 1787, we'd have to explain to them the whole idea of first blowing up New York with a cell phone which I don't know how they were, you know, uh, killing this guy with a drone. So we have no loss of life on our side, except for p- perhaps a robot. Um, terrorism in general, they, they couldn't – what information would they have to help us?
0: I want to ask you one more thing about this part yeah. of the founding fathers not imagining. I have actually yes. been in, in law school symposia as a you know, kind of bystander listening, and I actually thought one thing was quite interesting when some people had said, well, they couldn't have imagined certain things. But they were certainly – Women's rights advocates, abolitionists, women, people of color, indigenous Americans, who all had an opinion, who all actually had a voice, who probably didn't participate in the institutional political process. So, in Well, well slaves, hold on, hold on. Slaves didn't have a voice. No, didn't, but they did have, I'm saying, uh, that's what I said. They didn't have a voice in an institutional context, right. but they certainly, as we've learned through the last 50 years of historiography, they had opinions, they had expressions. So, in some sure. ways, the knowledge was available. For another world, you know, you know what I'm saying. That actually, it's sort of that. Of course, people thought women could have rights. For example, all women probably, many women probably thought. That. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's true. I've, I don't know. But if that's I've true. I've been in discussions where people really said there was no one who advocated for abolition in certain circumstances, and I thought, well, actually, all of the slaves did. Literally, probably there would, you know, as right. far so, so.
1: So you raise an interesting. You raise a really interesting point. Which and I've been having major Twitter battles with several originalists about this now for a long time. When they talk about the original public meaning, that's what they talk about, the original public meaning. The only way to make sense of that, I think, is the dominant original public meaning, right? Okay. So if we accept that view, we're not talking about every single conceivable public meaning that we get nowhere with that. We're talking about judges should look for the original public meaning. So let's take let's take gender in 1868. Do you have any doubt that the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment had nothing to do with women's equality? Any, any doubt? So when I so I say to my friend Ilya Soman at George Mason, for example, or Chris Green at, at 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 Ole Miss, both originalists, I say you guys defend gender equality based on original public meaning, but in 1868, the original the, the, the public's views of women were they weren't equal. So what's original or public about that? Tell me what is the original part, because it's, it's not true historically, and tell me what is the public part. Now, sure, there were people who were dissenters. Absolutely, you're right about that. And sure, there were people who, may, there may even been people who in their minds wanted women to have equal rights, but didn't vote for that for all kinds of practical, pragmatic reasons. But we can't debate the reality that the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment had nothing to do with equality for women.
0: Well, this gets us to the point, that's why I brought this up, that there were always and there have always been other voices and experiences throughout history that we've learned to listen and actually detect those voices of dissent. And then this ties directly to all of the free speech debates, which I've now spoken to so many people about this. And you said earlier, you indicated, you said you're a little bit more skeptical about the younger generation's commitment to this value. And I wanted to hear a little bit about why you have this impression, or what you meant by that. The backstory
1: to that is, I am one of the few American constitutional law professors who takes a European view of free speech. <laughs> so I want to I want to caveat what I'm saying by saying when when people have conferences and they want someone to, I'm speaking at Emory on Friday, tomorrow, uh, on a free at a free speech conference, and I was invited because I have a less robust vision of freedom of speech than virtually any other American law professor. To me, if the government passed a law tomorrow saying no political ads on television 30, 30 days before an election, which is the case in England, I would say that's constitutional. That, that's how far off I am. That, in other words, I would our Supreme Court would strike that down 9 nothing in five minutes. I think that law would be constitutional. With that caveat, I am incredibly concerned about the way young college and graduate students view the freedom of speech and 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 the whole idea that for example in a in a in a first year criminal law class at the University of Alabama of all places professors are afraid to teach the crime of rape the elements of rape because that will be too overwhelming emotionally for some of the rape victims in the class or, or just women in the class, and I'm not in any way denigrating, obviously, the torturous agony of being raped. I'm just saying young people today think words can hurt in a way that I, I don't think they, they 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 grasp how dangerous it is. There is a huge public controversy at Emory right now with a professor who used the N-word in, in a class that he taught. And he was immediately put on administrative leave. And then a few other things happened. And um, like I'm the least politically correct person in the world. But I'm starting to get worried. <laughs> um, the whole Yale... Let's stay, the whole stay Yale with this debacle. topic
0: for a moment. There's so many examples on all sides of this issue. To yes. stay with the example that professors are concerned and worried that they can't teach essential things because the topic itself may be incendiary yes. or upsetting. In some yes. ways, uh, so I'm thinking... So how do we deal with this as professors or instructors? So you want to teach a certain subject, or let's say I've taught Ralph Ellison's short story, A Party Down at the Square, which is about a public lynching. It's a very gruesome, horrific story with this sarcastic, cynical title, and it uses the N-word. And I've taught it, and it's been a really challenging text to teach. I also think it's one of it's a key text about, you know, 1950s America, basically. It's actually quite late. Um, But how do professors then move ahead? Because I think the options to say I'm afraid to teach this topic and therefore I've been silenced and these students are wrong. That's not a way forward. So I'm trying to figure out what are the students really bringing up? I'm glad you asked me that because I have to answer that question tomorrow
1: (laughs) In, in the context of in a very difficult context. Okay, so everything I've said our entire conversation to this point has been about issues I have thought deeply about for 30 years, which might explain some of my dogmatism. In other words, I may be wrong about a lot of stuff, but I really thought deeply about originalism, judicial review, and all of that. The like subject,
0: the holy status of the Supreme Court justice. Is- yes, all of that. I, I, you know, I feel like I've at
1: least a lot of, uh, you know, I think I'm an expert on those things. Doesn't mean I can't be wrong a lot, but I think I'm. I've done my best to become an expert on this. The question you just asked me is not something I've thought about for 30 years. Uh, It's something I've thought about deeply recently. I have far less thought out views on it than the other questions you asked me. I have an intuition, which I'm probably gonna try out tomorrow in this conference, but which may fall very flat. What I wanna say to these students, and they're mostly students of color, but not entirely, is, boy, do I understand your frustration our society is still so racist. The, the book, The New Jim Crow, which came out a few years ago, I think perfectly captures how we've moved you know, segregation from water fountains and schools to the prisons. I think there's in so many ways, our society still is so um, troubled and, 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 and so affected by racism. And you don't see anything helping, especially with Trump and his administration. You see it getting worse. So I understand your frustration. Now let's talk about means to an end. How do we change this? Because I wanna change it as badly as you do, I think. I want our society to be much less racist, less, um, the 1% is, is way too one <laughs> I, I I wanna change all of that with you. When you react to speech, the pure speech, not actions, pure speech, the way you're reacting, I think that's going to do more harm than good. And I'm old enough to have lived through the 60s and seen protest movements and and one advice I might give is is go study that. Because progress was made then. You know, we did have a voting rights act. We did get formal legal changes. Nowhere near enough progress, but some progress was made. I think what you're doing is having a rebound effect that's hurting your cause. So I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I'm not suggesting you don't have the right to be offended or chilled or feel like you're not in a safe space. Um, I'm not dictating your feelings. What I am suggesting is maybe you need to reconsider the tactics you're using to get to where you wanna go because free speech in America has a special place that virtually no other value has. And I'm saying that as a law professor who is known for not valuing free speech as much as everybody else. <laughs>
0: let How does that let sound? Me be, that let sound? me be, if I'm a fellow panelist, let's say, on your conversation, because yes. I'm not a student, yes. but I've also listened to a lot of students, as you have. Yes. I would say, well, Professor Segal, but you're framing it in a way when you said it's speech, not action, that you have skipped a conversation that's that took place in the 90s, largely uh, informed by all sorts of – legal and philosophical work, speech act theory, et cetera, et cetera, where people like Catherine McKinnon said, actually, speech can be action because it structures the place, a room. And I say a certain word. People are, and this is McKinnon, put into their places. When you use a racial or ethnic slur or you use something, a kind of demeaning term toward women, the women in the room or the minorities in the room, they're suddenly put in a certain place and other people are put in places of... Presumed power, so it actually does something rather than it performs something rather than it's just an expression of something. So, wouldn't the framing to say this is just speech be a way to, for for the students to say you are actually not acknowledging the power and impact so of a sign right. or something? But t- you move, but
1: you. But I would respond: you've moved subjects on me. A teacher using a racial epithet, separate from the context of the pedagogical situation he's in or she's in is is, is absolutely um, wrong, and that teacher should not be allowed. I, 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 public school or private school, a teacher who uses a racial or sexist epithet needs to be punished, and if they keep doing it, it needs to be fired. And
0: to give you the, the other need- example, so say it's just a quote. So I'm quoting Ralph Ellison or James Baldwin, and these examples have come up. So Randall Kennedy wrote this piece two weeks ago, since when is it a crime to teach James Baldwin? Because someone quoted Baldwin, right. quoted the N-word. Right. So I actually— I've reviewed Erwin Chemerinsky's, Howard Gilman's book, and I was struck that they actually spell out the N-word in the book. And yeah. I've talked to a lot of people, and I said, there's a generational divide that a lot of people in this next generation would say, you don't need to spell this out. By spelling it out, you're actually doing something. You're not just referring to a practice. You're actually repeating it, and it's not necessary for educational purposes. So, But that last sentence is wrong.
1: I mean, it's demonstrably
0: wrong. So this
1: Emory professor got in trouble, by using not leaving aside some some fact specifics of this case that might be different take a professor who's teaching a 1965 case about intentional infliction of emotional distress which is all about an african-american being subjected to the n-word in ways that the court thought might or might not lead to creating a tort of intentional infliction of emotional distress the only way to fully understand that case is to use the word you think so yes Let let me let me let me retract that. Yeah. yeah. No, but it is. It is a legitimate pedagogical decision to reach that conclusion. But I think this
0: is actually interesting to say this. I think that's one of the turning points in this argument when people say you could make the entire argument about this legal case without using the word. And I think that's really important. Whether when I don't know either whether where I fall on this, but I think a lot of people have said to me, no, you can make the entire argument without using the word. So that's actually, I think, where this comes down to sometimes, where people are standing on two sides of this. And some people say, don't use the word. And other people say, I must use the word to teach you something.
1: Well, but but now you've moved the conversation. I could be convinced that there are reasonable pedagogical benefits, costs and benefits to both sides of that. That is different. This Emory professor, as we talk, you and I talk, is currently punished for his pedagogical choice because students thought it was not a legitimate pedagogical choice and I think that's absurd and I think that gets in the way of their goals and I think it creates it's, it's going to well look at this way this and this is very obviously personal you know very small example but I, I was telling this to so Sasha Volok is, is an Emory law professor he's the brother of Eugene Volok, who everybody knows okay Sasha is his brother and um Sasha invited me to this panel and um one of the things I said to Sasha was, I know he knows my views. I know you partially invited me, I hope partly because you want me to be there, but partially because I'm not free speech friendly, you know, compared to most law professors. But these examples are turning me around. Mm-hmm. They really are. And so Keith Whittington at Princeton, who I'm sure you probably know, has written a book about this. And I know Keith pretty well. And and I actually got Keith involved. Uh, full disclosure – I'm, I, I should get full disclosure on this. I'm the Kathy and Lawrence Ash Professor of Law. Lawrence Ash is representing that Emory professor. I should make that clear to everybody. I don't
0: even when know what a conflict of interest is in this, but.
1: Okay. Keith Winnington just just told me like 15 horror stories about teachers and professors being punished for things that struck me as legitimate pedagogical choices. But even but even if I'm wrong about that. I think what I'm right about is I can predict that the backlash to this will be strong, will be severe, and will not be in the interest of the people who want change.
0: Well, it is the backlash. I think one of the pieces of the backlash is an executive order from the current president. Yes. So that's yes. a backlash. And I think that's actually yes. – I don't believe that executive order is beneficial to universities. I do not believe so. But that I, be I agree. I so agree. so yeah. I think what's interesting is to, to stay in this space – And I do believe there are many cases that you could point to. They say this is absurd and wrong and punishing teachers who did all this, let's assume, with the best of intentions, pedagogical intentions. There are probably also incidents and cases where students have felt this interferes with my right to participate on equal terms in the university. So I think you have cases and I, I just I'm always really attentive to say, yes, there's case after case after case that can show the absurdity of certain things. But in some ways, some students may say, well, of course, every law has some consequences. I mean, Nadine Strassman has written a book on hate. She she lists a lot of cases where the European laws result in what she considers absurd rulings.
1: Okay, but pause. So that's where where I've done a lot of my talking. And when people in America say it is absurd to punish people, for example, in Germany, who make pretty innocent statements about Nazis or whatever, you have to pause. We did – we certainly fought two world wars. We didn't lose millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions, and millions, and millions of people in those wars. And we – no one tried to take over – leaving aside Pearl Harbor, no one really tried to take over our country and, and, and march into our country. Nor um, do we have the shame of a 20th century genocide. you got to throw all those factors in. Before you start judging what Germany, France, Spain, you know, England are doing about freedom of speech. <laughs> you know, when, when bombers head to New York, I don't mean one nine eleven, obviously atrocious, but when they're bombed for three years and and the and, and really a foreign country may come over and take over us, you know what we'll do with free speech? We won't have any. And we've proven and we've proven that before. I
0: think what's po- interesting, I think you're you're right to bring in this historical context because I've talked to Fred Schauer and other people yes, and I've said, yes. look, these are incommensurate, incomparable things. Histories of countries is the Holocaust state sanctioned genocide with a lot of condoning from a lot of citizens. This is a separate and different story. However, Having said this is incommensurate and incomparable, a lot of people are saying we had 400 years of chattel slavery and the incredible violence inflicted on African-Americans and the genocide of indigenous Americans. So those are also histories that have to inform these practices. And
1: And my answer to that, by the way, you make a great point. And my answer to that, I think, is a slam dunk, which is we have never atoned. And that's wrong. And until we atone, we'll never get past it. And and what that looks like is beyond my pay grade. But let me just say, but let me just say, I, you know, when it comes to hate speech, I don't know where I stand on that in America. I think it's complicated. It depends on each case. I am much more willing to punish hate speech than most American law professors, because we have not atoned for what we did. Mm-hmm.
0: I think this is the moment, and this is why I think this is such an important topic. That's why I'm doing all this, because this is the moment where these different stories clash. There's this commitment, deep commitment to free speech in this country that everybody is really invested in. And then there's what you said, the history of this country, which... Well, now hold on. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I really am. When you say deep commitment to free
1: speech, you're talking passive voice there. What you really mean is the Supreme Court of the United States, and what we mean by that is unelected life tenure judges have, since 1925 or so, And as far as commercial speech goes, only since 1975. And as far as campaign finance speech goes, only since 1977 or so. It's maybe not surprising that lawyers from elite classes would view freedom of speech and freedom of expression so much more uh, intensely than immigrants and poor people of color and traditionally disadvantaged groups who care more about food and health care and being free of discrimination. So I, I I think our commitment to free speech, the word R in that sense, is the Supreme Court's commitment to free speech, not the American people's commitment to free speech. And we see that all the time. After Citizens United, Montana passed a law prohibiting what corporate spending could do in elections. And Montana made the argument, the corruption in our state is so bad and it has been so bad since 1912. And the law they were enforcing was from 1912 or 1910. That we have to limit corporate speech to have free and fair elections, even if that's not true nationally, it's true in Montana. And the Supreme Court summarily reversed it. Didn't even give it a didn't even give it a hearing. Just summarily reversed it. Um, so the people of Montana didn't think that. The Supreme Court thought that, and that's a big difference.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm. I'm- I mean, I'm leaving this conversation a little more skeptical about the court. <laughs> and I'm glad. My work is done. My work is done. Thank you. <laughs> but I think your work is about the fact that one shouldn't be skeptical just when the court doesn't rule in favor of one's convictions. So the, your point is that the, the over slightly overbearing power of the court is maybe not what is best for the public. Right. And, I want to, and, and, and
1: not to be too self-serving. I, I am known as a progressive law professor. When the world thought the Supreme Court was going to have five liberals or more and four conservatives and less, and Erin Chemerinsky was writing articles saying what – my friend Erin was writing articles saying these are all the great things the court is going to do. My mentor, Mark Tushnet at Harvard Law School, he's been great for my career, wrote a piece on his blog about all the great things the court is going to do. I said, no, 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 no. We should freeze the court 4 4 and take the court out of politics. Even if we, my side, controls the court, that's really—I I, just—I know that sounds awful self-serving, but it's true. It's what I said. What I believe, because I don't think lawyers should have this much power. That's what I think.
0: Well, I mean, I would love to sit in on a law school seminar where you train lawyers to say <laughs> you shouldn't overestimate your own potential. <laughs> well, well, I did, Well, no,
1: I mean, let me be clear. I teach the doctrine because my students have to pass the bar, and the law is the law, and you have to talk the talk. But I do hope to instill in my students a sense of professional ethics and modesty about, you know, the limits of what lawyers can and should do um, at the same time encouraging them to be very creative you know, and very smart and to play the game the way it's played because you have to. Right.
0: Now, I want to thank you, uh, Eric, for this conversation. Really fascinating, wide-ranging. Really, really great. Thank you so much for making time.
1: I, I appreciate it. Great questions, and I really enjoyed the conversation.